0: Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? All right, great. I love it. Hope that you guys are doing well. Like Brian said, my name is DJ. I'm the associate minister here at the Summit. We are so glad that you've chosen to come and spend your time with us. This morning, I learned very early on in my life that I am what I believe Disney would call the anti-Rudy. Here's what I mean by that. Rudy, the movie, is a story about a young man who has these grand dreams of being a great athlete. And it's all about how you should not give up on that dream. You should pursue that dream, you should focus, you should work. I, on the other hand, also had dreams of becoming a grand athlete. And I think Disney would tell me, hey, it's okay to give up on some dreams. (laughs) Like, really? That's, that's right. Let me, let me give you an example, because I love, uh, I love watching my kids play sports. I have four kids, and, and the oldest two right now, my oldest daughter, Grayson, she has been doing gymnastics for the last couple of years, and she's really good. I don't know exactly what that means, but when I look at it, I'm like, I can't do that. So that's pretty good, right? So she's really good. She's been, uh, I guess you would say, climbing up the ranks of this gymnastics world, Um, And then my son, Leland, my oldest son, he's into anything sports. He wants to like hockey, baseball, basketball. He came home from a trip a few weekends ago and he said, dad, did you know that horses play basketball? I said, what? He's like, yeah, we played this game that was created by a horse. What do you do with that? But just smile and say, all right, bud. Like, that's awesome, right? But he loves sports. He loves to play. He loves to go out and just shoot a basketball or throw a baseball uh, or whatever. But then there's me. Because I don't know where my kids get it. But I will tell you, it is not from these genes. I was in eighth grade. I went to a private school, a small private school. And I had a really good friend who said, hey, I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna try out for the basketball team. Do you wanna try out too? And at this point, I knew in my mind that I was destined to be a star. On the court, on the field, I didn't know, maybe in the rink? On the rink, in the rink, I don't know. And so I said, yeah, let's do it. Now, the only qualification is that you knew how to spell your name on a clipboard. And I said, I got that. It's two letters. That's pretty easy. So I sign it up, we go to the first practice. The coach and I both knew that practice, what my position was, and it was the bench guy. (laughs) And I was okay with that, you know? I was like, all right, basketball's not gonna be my thing, that's all right, there's still lots of sports out there that I can try, but it got better. Because the school that I went to, they had a tradition at every home game that the parents made one of those banners, those, those paper banners, big banners and the team gets to run through the banner. And that has been a dream of mine. Like, I don't know, I mean, I know there's more of you in here that are like, yeah, that's pretty cool, actually, I'm not gonna lie. So that was a dream of mine, and the way that they did it was whoever was the shortest on the team got to run through the banner. (laughs) This guy, right here. So I'm like, this is it. Like, this is what I'm destined for. I'm the banner buster of the team. So I'm getting psyched the whole week. I'm telling my friends in class, hey, guys, that banner that they're painting over there, I'm going to destroy it. It's going to be awesome. So the game time comes. It's home game. All of our, all of our team lines up behind me. And they bring the banner forth. And I do one of these motions like, guys, step back. I'm about to lead us to victory. And I look at this banner like it's a brick wall and I run with everything that I have toward this paper banner. And I trip over my coach's foot. <laughs> and I superman headfirst into the banner and literally slide across part of the gym floor. Now what made that moment worse than it already was, was that the rest of my team ran over me to do their initial lap around the gym. So I went from banner buster to a guy laying in the middle of the gym floor while his team does a victory lap around my defeated presence (laughs) in the gym. So I learned from a very early age, I am the anti-Rudy. It was at that moment that I was like, you know what, I'll watch sports. Let me tell you another story. The year was AD 33, and there was a cool spring of excitement in the air. You could feel it. And thousands of Jewish pilgrims had gathered from all around for the upcoming Passover. But this year was different. Because word had been spreading that some 30-something-year-old rabbi, prophet, teacher, healer from Galilee had just raised this guy from the dead. And so many people, hearing these rumors, they went to this small village outside of Jerusalem to go and see this guy that was dead just days before and to see the one who had brought him back to life. And the result was they believed in him and his message and what he was doing, and they followed him. And the crowd began to grow. And as the crowd starts making their way to Jerusalem, word continues to spread. And this energy becomes like a powder keg that's ready to explode. It's filled to the brim with messianic fervor, but also with hatred to the Roman opposition. The smell of revolution was in the air. The time of the Romans was finally about to end. And what made this moment even more energizing is that for 400 years, there had been silence from God to the people. And what that meant is that for four centuries, you had a people who were longing, retelling stories Sitting around the table at Passover, listening to stories from your grandfather that were told to him by his grandfather and his after that every year at Passover. But as I said, this year feels different. Now there are people walking the streets heading to Jerusalem, whispering rumors and telling stories about a prophet who's here, who's making his way into the city. He's coming. And it's said that he can tell you everything you've ever done. It said that he's been healing people. the blind see, the mute speak. Those who are outcasts are invited in. He drives out demons. He raises the dead. But even more than that, his teaching is strong. it's persuasive. It rings with truth from the Old Testament. He speaks with authority, and he's loved by many. And he even spends time playing with children. Could it be? Is the Messiah come at last? All right, so that story was a little cooler than my Banner Buster story. But I want to set the stage for us because we're starting a new series today called Fulfilled. And the reason why we're doing this is because back at Christmas, we did a series called Foretold, and we looked at some of the prophecies of Isaiah and how it pointed to the future coming of a messianic king. But what I've learned in life is that I can foretell a lot of prophecies. I can tell people I'm going to be a basketball star. I can tell people I'm going to be an amazing athlete. But what's foretold is worth nothing until it's fulfilled. And Jesus, in this moment today that we celebrate, is coming to fulfill. But the question is is he going to fulfill what was expected of him? I want to focus uh, on this story. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 for most of our morning today. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. If you have your phone, you can go to the summitstl.info. There's a sermon notes card there, and you can follow along uh, with the notes there. But in this story, this is the triumphal entry that we call when Jesus rides in to Jerusalem. Let me read it for us, the first six verses of Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives... The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. I want to focus on two parts of the story this morning. And the first part is this. I want us to look at what the people said. Let's look at what the people said for a second, because this is perhaps one of the most layered passages in all of Scripture. There's so much here than just what appears on the surface. There's so much more going on here than just the beginning of what we call Holy Week, than just Jesus entering the final stages of his work here on earth as he comes in humility and majesty. There's more going on here than just a multitude of people worshiping Jesus as the Messiah, their king. And so Jesus gives some very specific instructions in order to prepare for his entry into Jerusalem. He's been to Jerusalem before, but on this moment he's giving a very different set of instructions to his disciples, because this one is different. This entry is different. And so he tells his disciples, "Go and get this donkey that I can ride into Jerusalem on it." So the disciples do this. And what I love about this is this isn't just a moment that was prepared for. This was a moment that was prophesied about. That Jesus, he quotes in this passage, uh, one of our Old Testament minor prophets, Zechariah. And Zechariah said about 500 years before this happened that this king would come mounted on a donkey, humble. He would come with humility. He would come with meekness. He would be a humble king. And Jesus knows full well who he is. He knows full well what his mission is. And he knows full well what was foretold about him in the Old Testament. And so the story continues, picking up at verse 9. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. jumping over to the Gospel of Luke just for a second, because he adds to this story, and he tells us that as Jesus entered to Jerusalem, the people began shouting, and they shouted, Luke 19, 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. But what's interesting about this story is that at that moment, and Luke picks up on, on this story, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they go to Jesus as he's writing in, On this donkey. And they demand that he makes the crowd stop. They demand that he quiets down the people. And the question is why? What is it that's so bothersome to them? That they, because usually you see a lot with the Pharisees in the ministry of Jesus, they kind of hang back and they observe. And they kind of mock or judge kind of behind the scenes. And rarely do they actually go and confront Jesus. But in this moment, they go in front of this massive crowd to Jesus and say, make them stop. And it's because of what they're saying it's not the pomp and circumstance that's, that's going on. It's not the laying down of cloaks and the waving of palms. That's not the problem. The issue is that they're chanting, blessed is the King, Hosanna, our Savior. As the Pharisees hear this, they're thinking, wait, this is the kind of welcome that's reserved for Israel's Savior, the one who is foretold about in the Hebrew scriptures, and we know that this Jesus is not that Savior. So make the crowd stop. And I love what Jesus, how he responds. He says, and I believe with all humility and meekness, he says, if I make them stop chanting praise, then the rocks will start to cry out. That's how powerful this moment is, that if the people weren't singing, Hosanna, blessed is the king, come to save us, then the rocks would cry out. But I think this points to something that you and I sometimes struggle with. is that Jesus' title as king is unexpected. Jesus doesn't stop them. But even for the ones that are shouting Hosanna, I'm wondering, do they really know what they're shouting? Hosanna, this word meaning save us, deliver us, free us. Salvation has come. But think about it. What is their expectation of King Jesus? That he's going to come in and he's going to stop the Romans. And he's going to restore life so that Israel is their own ruler. They're their own nation again. Nobody's going to tell them what to do. So even as the crowd says, Hosanna, their reaction isn't going to be that much different than the Pharisees because neither of them are expecting the king that has entered Jerusalem. What both of them are failing to let go of is the king that they want. Let that sit on you for just a second. What kind of king do you want? What kind of king do you desire? What kind of king do you expect? So let's look at the second aspect to this story. Let's look at what the people saw. I would have loved to have seen this moment. I really would. would. I would like, I'm a people watcher. I'm a master at it. I've studied it for years, perfected the arts. I'm going to write a book on it, actually. I hope that you will pre-order your copy today. But I would love to just be a people watcher in this moment, to see how all of these different people are reacting, to see what the disciples are doing, to see what the crowd that's been following Jesus from the small village where he raised Lazarus, how they're reacting, to see how the Pharisees are reacting to see how just this crowd that lives in Jerusalem is reacting. It's interesting, actually, I've done a lot of reading and, and studying on this over the last few weeks. I, if you're like me, you've heard sermons on Palm Sunday that, that go somewhat like this, that how can a crowd that, that shouts Hosanna on Sunday scream crucify him on Friday? Right? I've, I've heard many sermons like that, and it's always troubled me. But what I've learned is that there's really no evidence that we're talking about the same crowd here. There's no evidence that this crowd that we see today as Jesus enters Jerusalem is going to be the same one that demands his death in just a few days. It's a totally different crowd altogether. Because the Hosanna crowd, their reaction is going to be to scatter, to flee to walk away sad. There's an interesting story actually in Luke chapter 24 where two of his disciples are walking down the road and it says they're sad because in their mind, their Hosanna, their Savior, is dead. And that's the end. But there's this other crowd, this Jerusalem crowd, that also has an issue with what they're going to see this week. It says, Matthew chapter 21, picking up the story in verse 10, says this, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? So these are people that really aren't familiar with Jesus. They don't really know what's been going on. They're kind of hanging out in and around Jerusalem. So they haven't been super exposed to his ministry over the last few years. And and as they see this coming in, in my mind, (laughs) I'm just going to tell you, my mind pictures that scene in Aladdin. You know what I'm talking about? Prince where he like comes in and it's like, fool, right? I mean, that's not what's happening. Let me be clear here, right? But I kind of have like this crowd is reacting and like this, what is happening? What is going on? And so they start asking, who is this guy? Who's this guy coming in on a donkey that people are laying their cloaks down and they're waving palm branches? This is super bizarre, And Matthew, he uses this same language. He says that the whole city was stirred up. And that's not like excitement stirred up. It's troubling. They're troubled. They're uneasy. Matthew uses this same type of language one other time in his gospel. It's actually early on in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we have the wise men who come to Jerusalem. And they go and they see Herod the king. And they say, hey, where is this? this king of the Jews, so that we can worship him. And what Matthew writes in chapter 2, verse 3, says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was stirred up, and all of Jerusalem with him. This crowd of Jerusalem is feeling, as Jesus rides in on a donkey, the same thing that they were feeling when the wise men came seeking the coming king. They're uncomfortable. They're threatened. They're uneasy because, once again, the religious establishment is threatened. The corruption of the leaders is threatened because, in their mind, somebody has come to take their power from them. Jesus is going to get too much attention. But then, even this crowd of Jesus followers... Even this crowd shouting praise and worship. I think what they're going to be troubled about starts here, in that Jesus is riding in on a donkey. Now that means something. It's actually not super bizarre that, that leaders and kings, we see this a lot actually in the Old Testament, several different places, would ride on donkeys. But it was extremely symbolic That any time you looked over your walls or or whatever from your city and you saw a king or an army approaching, and if they were riding on a horse, if that king was riding on a horse, you knew, uh uh-oh, they've come to wage war. They've come to fight. But a donkey doesn't really scream war. It doesn't scream vengeful wrath and anger. No, it's the exact opposite. When you saw a king that was coming riding on a donkey, it meant that he came in humility. He came in peace. He came seeking to form an alliance or or whatever it was, but he didn't come to overthrow you. And so Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. But the crowd has no idea. Because it would be extremely troubling for those Jews who are anticipating a Savior to come in wrath and war, to ride in on a symbol of humility and peace. Because the people wanted salvation that was equivalent to the same kind of salvation that was brought in the book of Exodus. You guys remember that story? Israelites are in captivity in Egypt. God sends Moses to proclaim a message of freedom let my people go and what happens after that you get the plagues you get the the parting of the red sea you get the israelites crossing on dry land and the egyptians consumed by the raging waters this is the type of exodus that the people are wanting jesus do to rome what you did to the egyptians But ultimately, what's going to be the problem is that Jesus' title as suffering servant is going to be unexpected. Because when they see their king riding in on Sunday, they're not going to know what to do when they see him hanging on a cross as a beaten blasphemer on Friday. But Jesus... In both of these moments is turning things completely upside down on both groups of people. So let's talk about the upside down kingdom of God, shall we? Because I don't get it. And my guess is you don't either. It's hard for us to understand, right? It's hard for us to wrestle with a lot of these things that Jesus not only teaches but the things that he lives out because it doesn't come natural to us. This is not the way that we live. This is certainly not the way that our culture lives. The people in Jerusalem are struggling how a conquering hero can ride in in peace. They shout Hosanna, but in their minds, they don't understand what that means. There's a story actually from a guy named Dallas Willard. Uh, he was a writer and, and philosopher, but he, he tells this story about, so he grew up in rural Missouri. R- rural, it's a tough word to say. He grew up in, in this part of Missouri where they didn't have electricity, which automatically I'm out, like that's, that's it. My house runs on electricity, right? And so he tells this story about how they were super comfortable in with their ice boxes and their lanterns and their kerosene, lamp, kerosene lamps and all of these sort of things. One day they get a knock on the door. It's an electric company. And they say, hey, great news. We're going to put up these poles that bring this electricity into your house. Never again will you have to light your lamps. Now to me, reading this story, I'm like, yeah, I'm happy for the Willard family. That's awesome, this is revolutionary. But Dallas tells a story where he says, all of them were against it. They didn't know what this was about. This was completely contrary to their way of life. They didn't understand it. And so they turned the electric company away and said, no, we don't want this electricity. And it got me thinking actually, that for us, just because a new way of life is offered, doesn't mean we're willing to accept it. Just because somebody brings us an invitation into something that is revolutionary doesn't mean we're all willing to jump on board. And when we read through Scripture, we see evidence of what we call this upside-down kingdom, things that go against what our natural beliefs or, or actions tend to lean and over and over again, we see things getting turned around and turned backwards and upside down. I mean, think about it. In this kingdom, the greatest among you is called to be the servant. In this kingdom, the first will be last, and the last will be first. In this upside-down kingdom, God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chooses the weak to humble the the strong. In this upside-down kingdom, the blind see, the mute speak, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life. Now I can look at all of those and I can say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Sounds like a kingdom I want to be part of. But is it? Because now's the point where we come to our big question out of this story. Jesus, writing in the way he does, begs us to ask this question. What misplaced expectations are hindering you from submitting to the humble example of King Jesus? Think about that for just a second. How do you expect Jesus to reign as king over your life? That is maybe in a way that isn't actually ushering you into the upside down kingdom. It's actually hindering you from finding fullness in God's kingdom. Do you have trouble with King Jesus in your life? I do. Because what that means, if I truly believe that Jesus comes as king and sovereign over every area of my life, it has to mean that I give him rule over every area of my life. And that makes me uncomfortable. Jesus, how about you just take this piece, but leave this one alone? Because I want to rule this. Or maybe for you, you have trouble with the suffering servant, Jesus. And what I mean by that is that for many of us, we struggle with this idea that Jesus coming in humble and meek wasn't just to fulfill a prophecy. It was to lead his followers into an example of what the upside-down kingdom is like. That his followers will ride in such a way that is humble and meek, that they will serve not just those who are easy to serve, but that they will also serve the people that come up and say, hey, why don't you quiet down? But if you're like me, you struggle with both. The moments where King Jesus, who is in control of every area of your life, feels too invasive. And the moments where the suffering servant example of Jesus feels too messy when dealing with certain people in certain situations. And so I don't know, I don't know what your need is this morning. But what I do know is this is a very significant moment as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, but does so much more as he extends to us an invitation to participate, to be active participants in a new kind of kingdom, an upside-down kingdom, a radically new way of living to become energetic participants in the suffering of Jesus while at the same time being humbly submissive to the lordship and the kingship of the messianic savior. And so as we enter into Holy Week, as we journey to the cross, I want to challenge you. Would you allow both parts of who Jesus is examine your life this week? Would you allow King Jesus to access areas of your life that maybe you've been holding back? And would you allow the suffering servant Jesus to act as an example of how we are supposed to live with each other and with our enemies? Because during this triumphal entry is the same thing that's going to happen at the cross. Majesty and humility collide into perfect harmony. So what do you see? And what do you say? As Jesus rides into your life. And as we hold on to a hope that is told to us, Revelation 19, that one day there will come a rider on the white horse who will conquer evil, who will restore the broken, who will bring ultimate healing. But we're not on that white horse. We submit to the servant king who is coming for ultimate rescue. Let's pray. God, we come to you, God, with hearts that are open, hands that are open, God, to receive who you are, God, we even right now repent of the moments where we try to create our own image, our own characteristics of you. But God, we ask, we invite you into our life, the fullness of who you are, the King, the servant. Humble and majestic. God confessing our own desire to strive for strength and power when that's not how your kingdom works. But you have invited us to be active participants in a new kind of kingdom, where strength and power are yours. And as your people, we walk and we follow and we lay down our cloaks and we shout hosanna blessed is the king blessed is the prince blessed is the one who has air- access to every area of my life blessed is the one who loved and called me to love who surrendered calls me to surrender to his rule and his reign. Hosanna in the highest.